You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. So we talk a lot in church about receiving Jesus, and rightly so. The language is in the Bible. We've heard the language in Colossians chapter 2 today as Paul talks about how the Colossians, he remembers and celebrates how they've received Jesus. When we talk about receiving Christ, we are describing that initial experience of God's forgiving and justifying grace. We're talking about the new birth, being born again. We're talking about that moment where we feel at peace with God for the first time, where we're, we're reconciled to Him. And it happens when we, we hear the gospel. Maybe we've heard the gospel many times, but then you hear it like it's the first time. And you hear the gospel and the Spirit of God is at work to convict of sin and work powerfully to, to draw people to Jesus. When we believe the good news that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised and that he's ascended and that he reigns over all things. We talk about receiving Christ in a way that means we're talking about coming into that life-giving relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. It's absolutely crucial that we emphasize the importance of receiving Jesus. Everyone needs to meet Jesus for the first time. The danger comes when we get the biblical language out of balance. And it's very possible, and it has happened sometimes in the history of the church, sometimes in the recent history of American Christianity. It happens that we emphasize receiving Jesus in a way that neglects growing deeper in Jesus. We sometimes emphasize the conversion experience, and it's crucial, in a way that forgets the ongoing means of grace, worshiping together, meeting together, searching the scriptures together, partaking of the sacraments together, serving together, on mission together, praying together, singing together, preaching together, reading together, all of the things that Jesus has given us, normal, old school, don't have to reinvent the wheel, plain worship and communion with God and the church as a way of experiencing his life in a deeper way, a more full way, cultivating an ongoing, deepening relationship with Jesus. For Paul, receiving Jesus is important, but it's not enough to realize God's full purposes for our lives. Don't misunderstand me. Receiving Jesus is crucial. Kind of like you can't drive a car if you don't turn it on. You have to take the first step. You have to do the first thing. It's prerequisite. It's crucial. You can't do the rest without it. You'll never achieve your purpose without the first moment. But if the first moment becomes the only point of emphasis or the primary thing, then we begin to lose sight of what's really going on in Scripture. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, 
kind of takes these two ideas, these two aspects of the Christian life, and holds them together in balance. Paul writes, as you therefore have received Christ, there's the language, received Jesus. That's the Colossians have received Jesus, and that's good. That's what he's after. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him. So there's this initial thing, and then there's this ongoing thing. It starts somewhere, but it doesn't start to stop immediately. It doesn't start to go into a holding pattern. It doesn't start to just go, hey, that was great. Now go back to what you're doing. Start as you received him, continue in him. And that's really what Colossians is about, isn't it? I mean, the whole letter isn't written to unbelievers. It's not primarily an evangelistic document. It's not primarily like, like a, a revival, like, like, you know, maybe back in the day they'd put up the tents, everybody'd come in, bring in a big evangelist and try to get some people converted. It's not doing that kind of thing. No criticism there. It's just this document, Colossians, isn't like that. He's writing to people who he says have already received Jesus. And he's calling them, he's exhorting them, he's, he's commanding them to continue in that experience of God's grace so that God's purposes for their life can come to full realization. For Paul, in Colossians, he's going to spend most of the letter articulating how to cultivate life in Christ after you've been born again. After you're forgiven. After you believe, after you've been reconciled to God. For Paul, the bottom line could go like this. Don't just receive Jesus, pursue him. Chase after him. Walk with him. Cultivate life in him. We're going to use Colossians 2, verse 6 as kind of a an entryway into the logic of the whole passage that we read together. So we're going to spend a few more minutes thinking about that, and then we're going to think about and reflect on how it kind of holds everything together to give us a sense of what God wants for us. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 is really the thesis of the whole letter. There's some amazing stuff that's happened so far and some interesting stuff that's going to happen after this, but this verse, chapter 2, verse 6, is the central thing. Like, if you want to know what Paul wants for the Colossians, you need to read chapter 2, verse 6. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. That phrase in the New Revised Standard Version, continue to live your lives in Him, gets rendered different ways. Some of your translations may say, walk in Him or something like that. Anybody got walk language there? I got a few. That's a more literal translation of Paul's Greek. Uh, the, this, this is more trying to get at the idea of a continued relationship with Jesus. But Paul would frequently say, if, like, if you belong to Jesus, you've got to walk in him. You've got to walk in the Spirit. You've got to walk with Jesus. And the idea there is, like, two people together in relationship are walking in the same direction at the same speed alongside one another. And that's what the relationship looks like. And it's strikingly the first commandment in the whole letter. If you were to go back to chapter 1, start with verse 1, and read all the way through, the first time Paul actually gives a commandment, an imperative, this is it. The commandment, continue in Christ. Walk in Jesus. Walk with Him. Cultivate this ongoing, deeper, rooted, he says, built up, established 
in the faith. So there's this ongoing thing, and this is the crucial piece. Every other commandment that's going to, he's got, he's going to have some more commandments. We heard a few of them already, but they are particular expressions of this one big thing. Walk with Jesus, continue in Jesus. Don't assume receiving Jesus is the point, the end, the goal. That's step one. Now you got to take the next step. Walk with him, walk with him, walk with him, walk with him. And all the other commandments about not being distracted or not being deceived or consider yourself dead with Christ. All those are commandments, but they're commandments that explain the one big commandment. You have the one big commandment, walk with Jesus. Well, how do I walk with Jesus? Well, you've died with Christ, so consider yourself dead to sin. That's an explanation of the bigger thing. So that's kind of how Paul thinks. A lot of his letters are structured that way. If you read uh, Philippians, it's kind of got the same structure. There's one big commandment near the end of the first chapter, and he kind of explains it along the way. So you can kind of see Paul thinks in the same way in so many of his different letters. The question then becomes how you walk. And there's some more help that he gives us. Uh, Another crucial word in chapter 2, verse 6, is one that we'll easily skip over. You might have already caught it, but some of us might have neglected it. It's the word therefore. Uh, The word indicates a connection, doesn't it? Like there's some stuff I've already said, And there's some stuff I'm about to say, walk with Jesus. And there's a cause and effect relationship between the stuff I've already said and the stuff I'm about to say. So all this amazing stuff he said about Jesus in the first chapter and a few verses, about how Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, everything has been made by him and for him. He's before all things. He's the firstborn of creation. In him, the fullness of God was pleased. He's got all this amazing, majestic stuff about how big Jesus is and how sovereign Jesus is and how glorious Jesus is and about how gracious he is. Verse 21 of chapter 1. You were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil things, but he reconciled you in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Provided you continue, don't forget that, provided you continue securely established and steadfast without shifting, but this is what he's done for you. The God-man showed up and sacrificed himself. His life is marked by self-giving love, perfect love, unfailing love for you, despite the fact, honestly, because of the fact that you did evil things. That's his posture towards you. So yeah, receiving him isn't enough. He didn't die for you just to bathe you off and be done with you. He suffered for you. He died with you. He joined you to himself so that he can make you a participant in his perfect love, in his life, so that he could bring you to his Father, so that he could fill you with his Spirit, so the evil deeds could become holy deeds, so that your life could be transformed. And so Paul says, like all that stuff, Jesus, fully God, fully human, showed up despite your evil and died for you. Therefore, walk with him. You can trust him. If somebody's going to bleed for you, you can trust them. If they will suffer for you, you can trust them. 
So trust him by walking on and on and on. And don't shift. Don't change speed. Don't try to say, I'm going this way. You can go. Like, we're not going to break in different directions. Paul says, don't shift from this. You walk with him. So that therefore gives us this sense of how all, like the whole letter hinges on this one verse. Jesus in his great mercy and love and kindness and graciousness has reconciled you to God. So receive him and then walk with him. Pursue him. Give yourself to him. Allow him to call the shots in your life. Don't hold him at arm's length. Don't just sort of put up that good Christian exterior Everything looks cool and you show up for stuff sometimes. Like, this is nitty gritty, let Jesus get into the junk in my life and make me whole kinds of Christianity. Don't just receive him, pursue him, chase after him, give yourself to him. Paul himself embodies the sort of posture that Christ has revealed in his death and resurrection. Maybe you notice this kind of peculiar language at the end of chapter 1. It gives us this amazing text about how Jesus has died for us to reconcile us to himself through his death to make you blameless and irreproachable. Right? To make you, he died to make you holy. And then Paul says in verse 24, Now I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That's the church. He doesn't mean that he's a dying for your sins. He doesn't mean that Christ's sacrifice lacks something that, like, like he's got to add some efficacy to it. He's got to, it didn't quite get the job done, so I'm going to come out here and suffer for you. That's not what he means. The death of Jesus is sufficient. Paul's sufferings are advancing the knowledge of that. The reality, the efficacious, the thing, the sufficient work of Christ is complete. It is finished, he says. And now Paul sees his ministry as being a crucial piece in the global realization of the full sufficiency of Jesus. So I'm, he's making it up. He's extending this. Why? So that the nations may know the word of God fully, so that the mystery that's been hidden can be revealed, so that the generations can come to Jesus, and the nations will know the riches and the glory of the mystery. But see, Paul is embodying the thing he's calling for. Like Jesus has taken Paul to himself, despite his evil deeds, and we know about those. Persecutor of the church. Jesus has taken Paul to himself, but Paul doesn't just receive Jesus. What does Paul do? He pursues Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, thanks for forgiving my sins. Yeah, I shouldn't have gone around killing your followers. Appreciate you dealing with that. Now i got some other stuff to do. Know what happens? Jesus shows up takes Paul to himself. Paul receives Jesus. And Jesus does things for Paul. Paul could never do it for himself, namely set him free from sin and the power of death. And then Paul pursues Jesus. He initiates, we respond. He launches grace in our life, we pursue him. And that's what Paul's doing. Like That's his life. He is suffering in pursuit. of. This is how important pursuing Jesus is for Paul. He's willing to suffer for it. 
If it means he bleeds pursuing Jesus for the glory of God and the sake of the church is of greater value than any pain he may feel or blood he may shed. So when Paul says, don't just receive him, pursue him, he's got skin in the game. Real skin. In fact, occasionally his skin got beat with whips. He's got skin in the game because he loves Jesus, because he's deeply committed to pursuing life in Christ. So then we ask this question, like, how do we how do, we do that? But that's the logic of the letter, isn't it? You've received him, therefore, continue in him. How do I cultivate that? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. That's what the rest of the letter is about. And so he goes on. And we, we mentioned you've got the big command and then some little commands. The first one is, don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition or the elemental spirits of the universe. Now, this is a passage that scholars love to argue about. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know the answer to, some, to, to most of the questions. Paul is instructing them not to be taken in by what looks like some local group of false teachers. The trouble is, we have no idea who the false teachers actually were. There's like four or five different proposals, and none of them fit super well, but that's the way it works. For some folks, it's um, Judaizers, kind of like over in Galatians, you got a group of Jewish believers in Jesus who want the non-Jewish believers in Jesus to get circumcised. All the talk about like observing Sabbaths kind of makes people think, well, maybe they're like, like maybe it's Judaizers. Maybe, maybe they want the Gentiles to follow Torah. Maybe that's what's going on. Trouble with that is the whole like, don't eat this and don't eat that, right? That sounds more like some ascetic monk types who are going off into some sort of super-duper self-denial thing or something, and it doesn't really match up with what we see in Galatians. So it's probably not Judaizers, and maybe it's some ascetics. And there's three or four other options you could take. Guess what? We don't know. Guess what? It doesn't make a difference in how we apply this text. Because the question then becomes, well, there's two questions. Number one, Paul doesn't want them to be taken captive by what he calls empty philosophies. It's not super hard to nail down some 21st century empty philosophies, is it? Some of them are going to be similar to the empty philosophies of the first century, but not necessarily so. Empty philosophies that we run in today that we don't need to be taken captive to. Materialism. I'll only be happy if I have this. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. I'll only be happy if I have that. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. That's an empty philosophy. An empty philosophy that has made its way around, especially in the last 20 years, is this radical sense of self-determination where my identity is completely detached from my embodied life. This shows up particularly in the, the idea of gender identity, which has nothing to do with the way God has made our bodies. The Bible would teach us that God has made us and he's made us good 
and all the things about, like the, the way that he's made us is good. And if I'm going to slide into a position, I want to be careful here. I'm going to slide into a position that says, you know what, I can define who I am without reference to how God made me. That's a dangerous place to be. There's some similar things happening in the first century, honestly. We won't get into that right now. But if I have this radical sense that I can define myself however I feel without reference to how God made me, we can put that in the empty philosophy category. Here's one that comes to mind for me frequently that I think we probably don't realize hits us pretty easily. And it is a philosophy marked by apathy. Sometimes we get to a point in life, and sometimes we get to a point with the church, where we're just kind of like, meh. I have a friend who actually was working on a book called Apathyism. It was about Christians who were just kind of like, yeah, I go to church sometimes, but I don't really care. My guess is we feel that sometimes. You know, after you've been a Christian for 25 years and you've done the same thing every Sunday for 25 years or however long, like it's easy to go, ah, we'll do something else this week. We'll catch them next time. Can we put that in the empty philosophy? And how quickly can we be taken captive to that? And didn't the pandemic help us realize how dangerous that is? Because how many of us, after everything got shut down for a few months, had to work really, really hard to care about showing up here on Sundays again. Not everybody, but some of us. And here's the sad reality, friends. Some of us are still feeling the apathy three years later. It's empty, and it'll take your soul captive. And it will inhibit your pursuit of Jesus. If you don't show up and worship God with one another, I mean, how many times does he mention, does Paul mention in this text, his commitment to the body of Christ? Christ, who's the head of the body, by the way, I mean the church. You cannot pursue Christ separate from the church. The church is the body of Christ, and if you want to pursue him, you do that with his body, in connection to his body. There is no such thing as a solo Solo Christian. No Lone Ranger. Christianity ain't a solo gig. It only, you only pursue Jesus in connection with the church. Don't be taken captive by apathy. There are others we could go on. I think you're probably starting to get the idea. Where are the things in my life that distract me from Jesus? Where are the things, the habits, the ideas, the practices that distract me from Jesus? Do I spend three hours in the evening watching talking heads argue about uh, trivialities on a screen? Chances are it's hindering my ability to pursue Jesus. Christian life is not just about receiving him. It is entirely about pursuing him with a ravenous hunger 
that will not be satisfied until he is all in all. So how do we do Like, so we identify the thing. Like, we've identified some of these empty... We don't know what the first century guys were dealing with super clearly, but we can identify what we're dealing with super clearly. And once we have, like, how do we, how do we step away from those things and into Jesus? Paul says, let's keep going. The answer, in short is that you have to consider yourself dead to those things. And that's a Paul way of saying you got to break up with it. Full, clean break. Like if you deal with apathy, you just got to get out of your lazy boy and get there. If you deal with materialism, you just got to know. Just stop. If it's something else, if it's this radical self-determination, you die to that. That doesn't mean it's easy. You don't use the language of death for stuff that's easy, okay? I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, ah, it's cool, today you can just kill your apathy. But the first step is to what? Kill your apathy. You may be experiencing this radical sense of I will determine who I am without regard to how God has made me and what he said about me. Step number one, kill it. And act in a way that resists it. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No. But we don't want to overcomplicate this. Simple things can be ridiculously difficult. And this is one of those things where it's simple, but it's incredibly difficult. So Paul continues. Verse 9, in him, Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So again, we have the incarnation, fully God, fully human. Fullness of deity, human body. And you've come to fullness in him. Right? So he's done this thing in you to bring like flourishing, wholeness, fullness. Like He's done that for you. How has he done it? By creating a covenant of union with you. And he compares circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament, as a mark of union with Jesus. When you were baptized, you were buried with him. If you're buried, it means you're what? Dead. So in that moment where you are feeling captive to whatever it is that's drawing you away from pursuing Jesus, in that moment, in my baptism, I've been joined to Jesus in his death. So no. It's not easy, but it is pretty uncomplicated. No. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. So you see how the gospel becomes the narrative that shapes the Christian life. He died for us and God raised him from the dead. When he takes your body, gives you union with him, Everything that's his, he shares with us, including his death, which cuts you off from all the things that try to slay enslave you. Like if you've died with Jesus, you're not a slave to apathy or materialism or legalism or libertinism. Like do whatever you want because Jesus forgave your sins. That's a lie. It's an empty philosophy. And if you've been joined to Jesus, 
Jesus says, you're dead to it. So die. It's not complicated, but it's not easy. Dying's hard to do. The question is, do we want the easy way, or will we pursue Jesus? Those are the only options. Last clue to how this kind of works out comes in the very last verse of chapter 2. Again, he's like throwing out all this, these characteristics of the false teachers. We don't know who they are. But we're reading through it and we're thinking, like, do not taste, do not touch, don't submit to regulations, all these, like, what's he talking about? And we don't know, but the last verse is ridiculously clear. These have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body. Like, they look good on the outside, I'm going to fast for 24 hours and make sure everybody knows about it, right? So they'll know how godly I am. I'm going to serve in every way so everybody will know how committed I am. Right? I thought serving was a good thing. It is. <laughs> Unless you're doing it to show everybody what a good Christian you are. He says they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. So whatever continuing in Jesus means, whatever walking in Jesus means, whatever pursuing him looks like, it involves checking self-indulgence. That thing in all of us that says, I will have my way no matter what. I see it, I want it, I'll have it. I will define who I am. I will get what I want. I'm Lord of my life. And the alternative to that self-indulgent thing is the pursuit of Jesus who has already taken hold of us and joined us to himself in order to make us participants in the perfect, eternal, unfailing love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share together. Like that's what this is about. He takes the fullness of God and a human body and joins them together so that you can be full of God. This is what it's about. In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have come to fullness in Him. The fullness of of the love that characterizes the being of the eternal triune God is available for you. You will not get it if you don't pursue Jesus. So, it's pretty clear what the options are, isn't it? We can either... Like, do the good culture, like, the, the nice Christian thing, the cultural Christian thing. Like, yeah, I got saved. I went to the meeting. I put on the appearance. I do some of the stuff. I'll serve on the committee. I'll take out the trash. I'll do some. Like, we do this. We do the stuff, and we think that our Christianity consists in it. Or, I will offer my tendency to self-indulge 
to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Knowing and trusting that I can't do it on my I, He can do for me what I can't do for myself, namely, bring me in to the glory of the beauty of the perfection of triune love. The only question is, do you want to experience that kind of love? If you do, don't just receive Jesus. Pursue him. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.